Hi, I'm Lisa Levin. And I'm Julie Sapper. We're the co-founders of Run Farther and Faster and co-hosts of the podcast under the same name. While we started this podcast as a Boston Marathon-focused podcast based on the experiences from our combined 31 finishes, we cover all things running-related. We've coached runners of all levels and goal distances all over the world for over 13 years. Thanks so much for joining us. We are so excited you're here. Hey, Julie. Hey, Lisa. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. At this time last week, we were projecting the top three men and women in the uh, Olympic marathon trials. And now it's a few days after, and I don't know about you. I'm still super excited about what we saw on Saturday. It was so much fun to watch. And I think part of the fun of watching uh, the Olympic trials is that um, although those runners move a lot faster than most of us, we can relate to like all of the emotions, all of the decision-making that goes into it, all of the, you can just see in their faces, you can understand what's going on. And um, I mean, I know I personally can't relate like that to any other uh, professional athletes and, and they're not all professional athletes. That's the other thing is they're just athletes who hit the Olympic tri- trials qualifying standard. Um, so I, I love watching it because I can just really relate to uh, what they're feeling, even though they're moving a lot faster than I do. Oh, for sure. So first of all, I want to give you props because you predicted the top two men. You said Connor and Clayton and you were. Yes. And you know, I got to tell you why. And I mentioned this a little bit last week too. I feel like when you have somebody like that, that you've got, it's got your back and that you're, you worked with and you're, you know, really well, I feel like that's just such an advantage. And, And what spoke to me most of that and what really reinforced that is there's a point toward the end of the race where I think it's, um, I can't remember which one, which one turns around to give a high, low high five to the other. Yes. Um, yeah. I was just Connor. I think turned around to give, uh, Clayton like a, a low high five. Cause I, I watched the an interview, uh, with Clayton who was like, I didn't know what he was trying to do. He's like, turn around and like, are you handing me something? Like whatever. But he like gave him a low five. And he said, that was the turning point for him in the race where he knew like, we got this, we got this. And he's still on team Clayton. I'm still on team Connor. And that's why that's just the gut feeling I had when I, you know, when I thought about it last week, because when you've got somebody like that, that's like got your back, maybe when you feel weak, they're strong When you feel strong they're you know, you, you pull them along. Um, that's, and that was so cool to see. I, I was like wondering as they were coming down the finishing shoot, are they going to cross holding hands? Like I thought they should have done that. There might've been something illegal with that. I don't know. Like if you're not allowed to cross holding somebody's hand or at the same time, I don't know, but I was wondering, are they going to like pull cross holding hands? I thought that would have been kind of fun. Um, so I mean, that, they pretty that much really- did. Sort of. Yes, they did. They did. They were like chatting as they were finishing because they knew they had it in the bag. Um, But it it was that I just think that really that power of having, um, you know, running is is an individual sport. And if it came down to it, I'm sure if they had to compete against each other, they would if they were competing for one spot or and there were times when I was watching the men's race and I kept thinking, if there are three of them together and there are only two spot guaranteed spots, right. And the two of them had already unlocked spots. So if one of them was third, they would have no power over unlocking another spot. They would have their, you know, maybe another runner will, but it it was like this really just, I kept thinking, Oh no, please don't be like two and three, because then that's really going to be which one of them gets two and which one again gets three. But in any case, I, I think if it came down to it and they had to race for a finish, they certainly would their competitors, um, but again, it's just, it's it, running, like I said, seems like an 
individual sport. But I think at the end of the day, um, it really is, um, it's about sportsmanship and it's about working together. And I love seeing that in running when we don't get to see that uh, on an everyday basis. So I, I was really happy for them. Well said. And also props to Leonard Creer for um, placing third. His smile, I mean, when he crossed the finish line, he was so overjoyed. And I appreciated that at that moment, I'm sure he wasn't sure if he will actually be going to the Olympics, but he didn't care. At that moment, he was celebrating what he had just accomplished. And I, I appreciated that too. He was asked, I believe, right when he crossed the finish line about that. And he said something to the effect of, well, I, I want to celebrate this win right now. And and I think that was well said. And of course he should. And he he was incredible as well. And um, yeah, interesting also men's race 20905, the winner, and then 20906 right behind. Women's race 22210. So of course that's Fiona O'Keefe. And I just want to point out like the discrepancy between the men's race and the women's race. I would love to know if that's typical or if it's a little bit less of a discrepancy between the two. I haven't researched it, but the difference yeah, between two to question. Yeah, just curious. Um, because you know, there's always a debate, of course, with Boston qualifying times and the differential of a qualifier between men and women, and of course the Olympic trials qualifying time, the differential between men and women. So I just wonder if, if perhaps it's a little bit closer than usual and big shout out, of course, to the winner. Everyone's been talking about Fiona and what she did by setting a record, running her first marathon, um, ever on that course. How incredible. And then so, so happy for Emily Sisson. So, so, so great. And then Dakota, like she's amazing and she's been out there working her tail off and marathoning and to have the opportunity to unlock that third spot is incredible. But I also want to give a shout out to our girl, Megan Kripchen, who has been on our podcast and who we also um, had the opportunity to interview on a live Boston panel a couple of years ago, busting out in that race pregnant, looking so joyful and running so fast. And that's because Megan is a strong runner and not everyone's heard of Megan. We've known Megan. We know she's strong. She runs for the BAA, but she's always been fierce. So why, why is it at all shocking that she's running so strong while pregnant? Shouldn't be because Megan's a machine and she's very, very bold. And I just love that she went out there and ran with such joy. And also shout out to another previous podcast guest, Laura Thweet. We love Laura. She's also such a force. And she's also a friend of Megan's. Um, hate that Laura ended up in the hospital because she had freaking COVID during this race. And Laura is such a hard worker. She is such a strong runner and such a great person. And I'm just really sad for her that that was her day. And finally, shout out to our dietitian, our girl, Kelsey Beckman Pontius, who um, she did not finish. We don't have the full story yet, but she is fierce and fast and amazing. And she's one of those runners that she runs like a professional, but she is not a professional runner. She works full time. And of course, she has a very, very thriving dietetics practice. She works with a ton of runners, including many of our own. And she works with our runners um, on a regular basis. And the fact that she somehow figures out how to train at such a high level, over 100 miles weekly, and is so successful in her running while managing this practice is truly incredible. And we wish Kelsey all the best. 
Yeah, I saw actually, first of all, we're going to hear from her in uh, probably just a week or so when we have her back. Um, she has been doing a monthly uh, Zoom call with our runners, which we really enjoyed. So we'll get to talk to her then. But I did read on her Instagram that she chose the wrong shoes, <laughs> that her shoes seemed to not um, be the right shoes. I think she had some pain or some issues from the shoes. She got aggressive in her shoe choice. So, um, you know, it happens. And I think that's a good example of like what I was talking about before being relatable. All of this has happened to us and runners where the shoes didn't work out, where you had COVID when you were running a race. Like we've had runners, we've had that. We've had um, heat issues. We've had, um, you know, we've had pretty much everything you saw out on that course. We've had runners of all levels that have have faced those same challenges along the way. So, so very relatable. And to back to your last point, I looked up while you were talking, um, the results from the 2020 trials. And very interestingly, the men's finishers um, Galen Rupp was 209. So about the same time women's, and again, it was a different course, but the men and the women were running the same course here. So, um, um, uh, the women's times were all 227, 228. So we've come up about five ah. minutes, which is very interesting. And the men have stayed about the same. So that's a very good, I thought that was a really good thing, you know, good question and, and good point. Um, so yeah, women, I think, and I think this is anecdotally and just looking at race results and what women have done this year, I think women are getting faster. Yeah. And I think as a result, I think as the qualifying times may be shrinking between the differential between men and women as a result. And I, I mean, I'm maybe be controversial by saying this, but I think that's right. I think that's, I think the half hour different time right now, half hour difference in qualifying times for Boston between men and women, I think that's a lot. And if you look at now, you know, that there's about a 15, less than 15 minute difference in the top runners, and of course that's a percentage, but still, um, I don't know. I, I'm, I, I, I'm in favor of, of possibly of, of reevaluating that and looking at, um, you know, at everybody's qualifying times, but I, I would not be surprised if that, if that happens. So I respectfully disagree. And here's why I think that there is an increasing, I think women runners have a lot more to contend with. And while there are, you know, a, a lot of talented women runners as reflected in the trials, of course, there are a lot of talented women runners who can't run the trials or don't for a variety of reasons. And I think that women have a disadvantage that is, to be honest, is pregnancy. And I think that, um, pregnancy and hormones recovering from pregnancy is different for everyone. And so many women runners are really hitting their stride, no pun intended, in their 20s and 30s and 40s. And what does that coincide with? Your years of fertility. So for that reason, I do think that it should remain the same differential. The other reason I believe it should remain the same differential as now is because of uh, the impact of hormones on women is so different than men. And women master's runners are really, I think, dealing with a lot more in terms of hormonal changes, absolutely, than men. And in terms of allowing women to continue to thrive in that master's and grandmaster's space, there are some, I think, hormonal disruptors that can impact the trajectory of a woman's running success. And as a result, I would prefer that the time differential remain a half hour. Okay. I, I get that. I, I think, I think it would take a kind of deep dive into the numbers at looking at like, not just, you're right, not just the trials and the subset of runners, but taking a look at all of the results from all of the, you know, from, from marathons in general, and maybe different, like you said, maybe different age groups, maybe at 50 to 55 or 50, 54, maybe that differential is a little bit bigger because men 50 to 54 don't, aren't 
contending with the same, you know, the same challenges, physiological challenges. So maybe there it's different. Maybe it's a 20 to 24. It's, 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 it's a smaller gap, maybe. Right. So I think, I mean, somebody has to be smart enough to do a data, you know, a data analysis of all of the results out there and what does, what does um, represent the top percentages of women's times in each different age group. This is, I think, I, I think that's fair. Yeah. yeah. So, but at any rate, this is definitely the year of the woman. And it was really exciting to watch just all of these women achieve their goal by being there, especially after the standard had been reduced to 237 and the controversy surrounding that and seeing such a robust field in spite of the uh, more stringent requirement is truly amazing. So congrats to all of the women who entered and ran the race, whether you finished or not. It's truly incredible. Um, before we get to our guest, just a couple of housekeeping matters. First of all, we have now up on our website the opportunity for anyone who's interested to do a pre-race coaching call with us. So we will also link it in our show notes, but now would be a great time to set up your coaching call, especially if you have a spring race. Um, we will be able to talk with you, go through your race plan, and help you develop a strategy. It's not the same, of course, as our hands-on coaching, but it's an opportunity if you just kind of want to do an a la carte option where we talk about your race plan. We're happy to provide our guidance, and we have a lot of experience between the two of us, specifically the Boston Marathon. So if you're training for Boston, you're not using a coach, and you'd like to speak to us, we would be delighted. We just ask that you sign up on our website and we're happy to provide you with that new service we're offering starting this year. And then the second housekeeping matter, we're super excited to share that we have a date confirmed for our BAA panel with our fellow podcaster, Cherie Louise Turner, who's the host of Women's Running Stories. We are back together again and we're hosting an exciting panel. We will reveal the guests shortly, but we we know it's going to be great. It's going to be on Sunday, right before the Boston Marathon, April 14th, Sunday, April 14th, at the Expo, the BAA Expo at 2 p.m. So well after the shakeout runs, which will also be hosting one of those again. So mark it in your calendar and come see us. Um, we'd love to meet so many of you. And of course, we are excited to present these phenomenal guests who will appear on the panel. Yes. Cannot wait. That was a great, um, we had a great panel last year. This year's panel is also shaping up to be really good. And like you said, we'll wait till we confirm with everybody um, to announce announce the guests, but um, it is going to be um, another really fun opportunity for us to um, uh, highlight and introduce some really great runners um, and hopefully to, to meet everyone else there who's listening to our podcast. So come meet us, come hang out. We're already ordering some goodies to give away um, at Boston again this year. So we're excited about our, our fun giveaways and um, excited to see people. It's getting close. I mean, we just booked our flights this week, which is uh, exciting. And we're flying together this year, which I love. like we're going up and we haven't done that in a few years because our schedules have been different, but, um, but we'll get to extend our, 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 um, our Boston marathon weekend by, by traveling together. I'm very excited for our girls weekend, Lisa. It's always a Me highlight. Yay. So we have a great guest this week. Um, it's a clinical sport. She's a clinical sports psychologist. And the reason we wanted to bring her on, we'll introduce her in a moment, is because mental training is just as, if not more important than physical training. And we find that you just can't get enough wisdom and guidance from sports psychologists on how to navigate 
uh, mental, the mental component of training and racing. And our guest today is Dr. Shira Oretsky. She's a PhD and she's a clinical and sports psychologist. And she has dedicated her career to helping elite athletes develop a high performance mindset, as well as well-being strategies to reach their full potential. We found Dr. Oretsky. She told us to call her Dr. Shira um, from an article in Runner's World that really spoke to us because it talked about all of the ways that anxiety is manifested in runners. So anxiety isn't just about, I'm nervous about my race. Anxiety can be something as simple as not being able to run um, 7.8 miles, but instead having to, to get to eight so that you can log it in on your running log and in Strava because you, you have this fear of not making your mileage requirement for the week and perhaps falling behind. That too can be anxiety. And when that anxiety is disrupting your ability to reach your full potential, that's when it can be a problem. Whereas in other times, it's it's perfectly normal. And we know plenty of people, including us, who've rounded that number to eight or nine when we're at 7.96. So we totally get that. But when does that become disruptive? And that's what we talked to Dr. Shira about. Dr. Shira is the co-founder of Mind Edge Sport and Performance Consulting, where she specializes in working with collegiate, Olympic, and professional athletes. And she currently serves as a sports psychology consultant to the University of San Diego's athletic department and also other collegiate and professional athletic teams throughout San Diego. Prior to her work with USD, she held a 15-year faculty appointment at San Diego State University, where she developed the Student Athlete Mental Health and Wellness Program with the Athletics Department in Sports Medicine. That program now serves 19 Division I teams. She's a member of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, Sports Psychology and Mental Health Registries, and the National Basketball Players Association Mental Health and Wellness Registry. She's also served on the board of directors for the San Diego Psychological Association and chaired the SDPA Sports Psychology Committee. She is really, I mean, such an expert in the real deal. She's the real deal. And I love talking with her. And by the way, I loved her voice. She was so I was just going to say, like, when we got off the phone, I was very calm. And we got off our our, our Zoom call. We do our interviews over Zoom. But I was like, oh, she's so she's so calming. So, um, yeah, she's a great guest. Yeah, absolutely. So without further delay, we will introduce to everyone Dr. Shira Oretsky, otherwise known as Dr. Shira. Lisa, I hope you have a great week. You too, Julie. Bye. Bye. Dr. Shira Oretsky, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. I'm glad you're here. And as we talked about just earlier, we will be calling you Dr. Shira. And uh, thank you so much for spending time with us today and sharing your expertise with us and our listeners. So to kick off today's conversation, we just wanted to ask you to start off some details about your professional background and your athletic background. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's um, an honor to be here with you ladies today. Um, People always ask me, how did I get into the field of sports psychology? So I'll start a little with my athletic background and then kind of move into my professional background. Um, When I was four, I had a lot of energy and um, my parents decided to enroll me in a gymnastics class um, to help me kind of channel that. And I absolutely loved it. I wanted to be just like Mary Lou Retton and win an Olympic gold medal and kind of spent countless hours training in the gym day in and day out. 
Um, and this dedication gave me the physical skills, you know, to really um, succeed in my sport. Um, but it wasn't always easy, you know, when the pressure was on. So sometimes I would kind of be under this laser beam focus and totally in the zone and, and just kind of knock it out of the park, so to speak, with my competitions. And then other times it would be more challenging. I'd find myself kind of nervous and um, have a stomach ache and have a hard time focusing. And, um, you know, as a kid, as a competitive um, athlete, it's hard to know exactly what's going on when things are off. But it, it caught me on this um, kind of path of thinking, well, if I can train my body, is there a way that I can train my mindset too? And um, is there a way that I can train my nerves to stay calm under pressure? And it kind of planted a seed in me to go on and explore the connection between mindset and performance um, and really understand the underpinnings of how the mind and the nervous system work. Um, and, um, you know, I never made it to the Olympics in my sport per se, but I have had the honor of working with a lot of athletes, um, to help them reach their dreams and Olympic goals. So it's, it's been really rewarding. Um, when I was in graduate school, I did my research, um, on yoga and looked at kind of the scientific connection between the mind and body and health and performance. And so that also shaped the way that I work with athletes. I like to kind of come from a um, a whole person in comprehensive psychophysiology model. Um, when I was, um, after I got my PhD in psychology, I did my postdoctoral fellowship at San Diego State University and started to work with a lot of athletes there. And um, because of my athletic background myself, I felt like I was able to kind of build rapport quickly with them and, and make that um, connection. And it, I found it to be interesting because, you know, being a division one um, football or basketball player or track athlete on the outside, it can look pretty glamorous, but I realized pretty quickly um, behind the scenes, they were under a lot of stress and pressure and, um, you know, to be able to stay mentally and physically at the top of their game, like a lot of us athletes experience. And, and so, um, you know, I realized athletes are a population that, has, needs needs a lot of support. There's a lot of stress and a lot of pressures, um, but it's not always easy to kind of ask for help. And so um, sports psychology became a real passion of mine. I went on to, you know, complete a certification in that. And um, it's been kind of the, the center of the work that I do um, professionally. Um, I think you guys shared a little bit about my bio, but um, I currently have a private practice in Del Mar where I specialize in working with elite professional and collegiate athletes. Um, I also am contracted with um, University of San Diego athletic department and, and some other sport organizations throughout San Diego. Um, I'm a member of the US Olympic and Paralympic um, sports psychology and mental health registries and the National Basketball Players Association mental health and wellness registry. Um, and this past year I've had the opportunity to um, work on some mental health and wellness initiatives with major league rugby. So that's a little bit about my athletic and professional background. That is, that is awesome. And what a great um, trajectory of your own career and your own passion for athletics to be able to now work with, with athletes. And like you mentioned, I think that, you know, your background certainly gives you a, a very, um, you know, an ability to empathize and, and to understand uh, what these athletes of all ages are going through. You mentioned you were at San Diego State. Do you feel like um, university is a division one, whatever division might be, are starting to pay more attention to 
um, the mental health of, of athletes and are they providing um, that kind of support on campuses? Absolutely. Um, a few years ago, the NCAA came out with best practice guidelines for mental health and wellness um, regarding uh, student athletes. And I think, you know, there, there's been notoriously a lot of stigma related to psychology, as we know, and, and especially in the athletic population that kind of tough it out and persist through pain and um, mentality. Um, and so, you know, I think in the last, I would say, um, eight to 10 years, there has been a real shift in terms of um, the athletic culture and um, mental health services and support. And, you know, we, we've seen a shift um, definitely at the collegiate level. Brian Hainline, who's the chief medical officer for the NCAA, he's made mental health um, one of the main strategic priorities. Um, and, and we're also seeing that kind of at the professional and elite levels as well. Um, so you see the NBA and the MLB and some of these other leagues um, and the USOPC really, you know, um, creating some mental health and wellness initiatives um, to support their athletes. And then at the same time, you know, as you see professional athletes speaking out openly as well, I think that kind of gives um, other athletes permission to follow suit as well. So I think, you know, what's always been there and what's been kind of invisible is coming to the forefront and um, people are definitely um, having more supports in place and feeling a little bit more comfortable speaking openly on this topic. I would imagine that Simone Biles' experience at the Olympics uh, probably drew a lot of attention to your practice. And I would imagine a lot of people feel a little bit less reluctant to seek help based on her transparency during that process. Absolutely. I think she's been, you know, a trailblazer, not only in terms of her sport, um, but the mental health piece as well. You know, it's, it's not easy to kind of come out and talk openly about your struggles and, you know, some people supported her initially and, and she also, you know, had critics. So I, I think she was brave in what she did. And I do think it, it allows others to feel more comfortable um, speaking openly about this topic. Yeah, we've both noticed, I think, uh, even just in the athletes, we coach more of an attention and understanding of the, um, you know, the, the mental side and the, the emotional side of, of, of training. And, you know, we're not necessarily coaching um, Olympic level athletes, but as coaches, um, you know, what really, um, why we wanted to talk to you and especially kind of at the beginning or sort of toward the beginning of the spring marathon training season. And a lot of our listeners, many of our listeners are training for Boston and are training for big goals for this spring. And as coaches, I think one of the, one of the things we're really interested in figuring out is, is what, what do we look for? What do athletes themselves look for as, as symptoms of anxiety? What is the difference between somebody who's just really focused on training and really, um, you know, occupied with their training or be um, nervous or excited about their training? And like, where does that cross the line into something that can affect your performance. Um, so maybe you can speak a little to that. What are the symptoms and um, what's that dividing line between excitement and nervousness and anxiety? I think that's a great question. I like to think of anxiety almost on a continuum, right? Because some of it can actually be helpful to our performance. It can motivate us, help us prepare. We feel more alert. Um, we can kind of fine tune our focus. Um, but when stress becomes heightened, um, or ongoing, it can then negatively affect an athlete's performance and overall well-beings. 
Um, I think symptoms of anxiety can kind of present in a few different ways. Um, often as athletes, one of the first places that we're going to register stress is our bodies. We know our bodies really well. Um, and so as an athlete, you may notice increased muscle tension or rapid heart rate, breathing speeds up, a tight chest, um, feeling jittery, stomach aches, changes in appetite. Um, those are all, you know, some of the physical symptoms that could be connected with anxiety. Um, and then on the mental level, an athlete may start to notice racing thoughts or excessive worry, um, hyper-focus on past mistakes or, you know, an upcoming race, um, thinking of worst case scenarios, um, feeling more self-doubt. Those are all things that, that you may experience on the mental level. Um, and then what happens is when we experience these symptoms, um, when we're in this kind of heightened state for a long period of time, it can be taxing on our physical bodies. It can create fatigue. Um, it can um, have an effect on our immune system and also increase the chances of injuries. So um, I think as we talk today, we can kind of think about this continuum. Um, I guess with the athletes I work with, I would almost think about um, the volume on, on our um, phones or computers. You know, sometimes we, sometimes you know, we want to turn the volume up. It, it actually is fun. You know, we might want to get pumped up before a race. Um, it can be really effective, but sometimes it can be too loud if we're, you know, trying to relax or recover or go to sleep, we want to be able to turn it down. And so I want us to kind of think about the continuum. Um, it's not good or bad, but, you know, where are we at knowing ourselves? How can we identify what's an appropriate level of anxiety or stress? When is it too much? And then how do we kind of um, gain some control so that we can move up and down um, on the continuum as we need? So let's talk about that because the symptoms you just mentioned, in some situations, they're very appropriate. It's appropriate to have a little bit of a nervous stomach before a race. It's appropriate to have heart palpitations. It's appropriate to perseverate on your race execution right before a race. But of course, it can also be at times inappropriate. For example, if you're in the middle of a training training cycle and the night before a workout, you have so much anxiety, you can't sleep just before a workout versus before a race. So can you talk a little bit about how an athlete, particularly a runner, can identify when those symptoms actually are not appropriate and what to do. Yeah, I think that's a great point. When, you know, it's it's kind of the intensity, the duration and how it impacts our performance and our, and our overall well-being, you know. So if if you notice it start to get in the way of your performance, um of your training or, you know, your day-to-day -day life, I think those are, you know, definitely times to pay attention. Um some of the some of the other kind of red flags, so to speak, that we can become aware of is if we have, you know, significant changes in our mood, in our appetite, um, fluctuations in our weight, um, if our sleep, you know, if we notice the anxiety really impacting our sleep ongoing, those are some indicators for concern. Um, if it starts to affect an athlete's training, right? If if you notice yourself kind of missing practices. Um, or having dragging and having a hard time getting there um, on an ongoing basis, um, or on the opposite end, you know, that anxiety can lead to overtraining. So, you know, if an athlete has a hard time um, taking a day off or, or having any rest, um, you know, that's also 
you know, something to be aware of. So um, I, I think those are particular um, signs and symptoms, as well as, you know, if if those that are close to you are kind of noticing things and, and maybe bringing it to your attention, whether it's a teammate or a coach or a family member expressing concern, you know, those are those are helpful signs that something could be off. Yeah, that's helpful. And, um, you know, you're just talking about sometimes we want the volume up, sometimes we want the volume down. When when do we want it up? And when you know, when is it useful to have that? Like, we often say, you know, runners tell us I'm, I'm nervous before a race. We say that's good because we wouldn't want you going into the race being like, I'm totally chill and relaxed, right? Because then we want that um, adrenaline. So that's good. So when when do we want the volume up and when do we want the volume down? I think that's a great question. And I like what you're saying exactly, you know, right, right before a race um, can be a good time to have a little bit more adrenaline running through us and a little bit more energy. We're kind of pumped up that can be effective. I think, you know, if, if we think about anxiety, it's, um, it's our biological response to stress. So it's that fight, flight, or freeze response. Um, it's protective, it's helpful. So, um, you know, it, it was created to help us. Um, and it can be positive in that way, like you're saying in the short term, right before race. I, I think where it becomes problematic is if it's more ongoing, um, because that is where, um, like I had mentioned, it, it can drain our resources and, um, and, you know, make us more depleted and more prone to injuries. I, I guess I would explain it with a runner, um, you know, mentally you want to have prepared for a race, I'm assuming to kind of go through, okay, what are the different components of it? You know, um, what, what are certain things that I might want to expect, um, and anticipate that helps you to be prepared and to be able to execute most effectively. You don't then want to continually rerun the race in your head over and over and over to the point where, when you get to the starting line, you're just mentally fatigued. So some is good, but we don't want to kind of become, you know, fixated on it or um, have it get to a point where it's kind of depleting us. Do you see a difference in um, men and women and how they, you know, how they um, either manifest it or how, you know, what like we were just talking about, some people may overthink some things, but do you see a difference in either how the, how um, anxiety manifests or presents itself in men or women, or do you see men or women more likely to kind of get into that cycle with that, that beyond that, short-term helpful at, you know, excitement. Do you, do you see a difference between men and women? I think that's a great question. Um, I think there can be some generalities, obviously, you know, each person is, is individual, but I think, you know, men may, um, experience more societal pressures to suppress anxiety, um, or at least have been in the past. Um, they may have a propensity towards internalizing stress more, and it can kind of come out as more physical complaints such as muscle tension or fatigue, irritability. Um, and, you know, for women, we have to kind of consider hormonal differences. So, you know, in terms of our cycle, we may experience more anxiety at different points. Um, I think that's a topic that's um, coming to attention more, which I think is important to, to kind of consider that and um, to help us optimize our training. Um, I think... Um, you know, women may experience more worry or self-doubt. Um, some of those things come up and, um, you know, in general, they may be a little bit more comfortable, um, talking openly about it and getting some support. So I think that's helpful. Um, but I, I have seen, you know, a shift in terms of mental health, like we were talking about, 
um, which has been positive for athletes, both men and women, to to feel a little bit more comfortable um, kind of reaching out for support. So I think, you know, as things are evolving, it, it does um, impact how athletes are kind of experiencing and expressing anxiety. I'm listening to you and I'm kind of thinking about, is there a litmus test to determine whether all of these symptoms, again, some of which are super common, um, actually amount to anxiety versus just appropriate behavior near a race. And I'm thinking about it and it seems like it would be the same litmus test with kids in school, which is, does it affect your ability to function as a student in the classroom? So applying that to running, for example, does it affect your ability to function as a productive runner training for a race? And if the answer is yes, then that means you may have some anxiety that would support getting some support in one way or another. Is is that correct? Yeah, I think you're spot on. I think, you know, to have that framework is definitely in line with what you're saying. Okay. So my next question is, what about the runner who, and this happens a lot and it's completely understandable, Runners set goals and goals are what keeps runners engaged in the sport. And often the goal is based on time or based on, of course, a qualifier. So a lot of our runners understandably want to qualify for the Boston Marathon, for example. Um, We just had the Olympic marathon trials. A lot of those runners, the goal was to qualify for those trials. And then within that population, the goal was to finish in the top three. How do you recommend a runner specifically continue to focus on a goal without allowing that goal to become the anxiety? Yeah, it is. Um, it is kind of a tricky piece, right? Because we want to set goals. We want to have expectations for ourselves that can motivate us, that can help us work towards something. Um, but we don't want that to be the only factor that kind of defines us. Um, and so, you know, in, in certain sports, we'll think about kind of process versus outcome goals. Um, and you know, how, how does that, um, you know, what are some, some smaller term goals that we can set along the way, um, that can be helpful as well. Um, I think also, you know, it's so tricky so much as an athlete, so much of our identity is connected to how we do and the numbers and our performance, but if we can find a way to, define ourselves, not only by those numbers, but, you know, the effort that we put out um, are, you know, some of the qualities, our our hard work, our training, our resilience, um, some of those defining characteristics, I think that can be helpful as well. So we're not only defined by our number and that, you know, makes or breaks us. I think that's great, Julie. And I often go through that with our runners. We set try to set process and outcome goals. And, and we focus on the process goals because that's what we can control. We we, you know, we have more control over the process goals and the outcome goals are subject to a lot of uncontrollables. And we always say it's, you know, one day, a few hours maybe of one day that um so we we like to hear you say that. What else can runners who may be wondering, like, am I, you know, is this productive? Is this, you know, am I crossing the line into anxiety? What what can runners do other than kind of in, in goal setting, but what can they do? What is the kind of the steps and at what point does, does a runner, would it be helpful for a runner to see a professional like, like you? Um, sure. So, so what are some tools and strategies that they can use to manage anxiety? Um, and then what are, you know, when would it be appropriate to seek professional right. help? Yeah, sure. 
yeah, I, um, there's two main things that I like to work with, you know, athletes and runners on, um, in terms of the sports psychology, um, tool belt that they can, they can have in their, um, repertoire. The first, um, and, and these things help to kind of manage our, our nerves, manage our level of activation, um, help us to kind of get centered. And the first would be a quick kind of grounding or centering technique. I like to use deep breathing or diaphragmatic breathing. Um, I think breathing is one of the quickest, most effective ways to kind of calm down our nervous system and help us to manage um, some of the pressures of performance. So it helps to um, kind of relax our muscles. It can reduce heart rate, increase blood flow. It helps our, improve our focus. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's something concrete that we can use. So we would slow down our breathing and, and find kind of our natural rhythm. So we would, you know, inhale through the nose, exhale through the nose or mouth, inhale through the nose, exhale through the nose or mouth. And this begins to help us to have, um, like I said, more control over the nervous system, have more control over that dial that we've been talking about. So if we notice our energy is a little higher than we want it to be, um, it can help us to, to kind of move back to center. So that's one thing that, you know, an athlete can work on and it can be part of their, they can use it before workouts or part of their pre-race routine. Um, you know, when, when we move forward with the skills, it can also be paired with music, um, kind of a favorite playlist. It can be paired with visualization, things like that. Um, and then I, I guess the second tool I like to use, they're called performance cue statements or mantras. Um, and these are personal, positive, and short. Um, they can be either motivational in nature, right? Like you got this, trust your training, let's go is a popular one right now. Um, or they can be instructional, um, more neutral and kind of focused on technique. And what these mantras or performance cue statements can do is they really help to um, provide a mental anchor um, and give the mind a place to focus when we're under pressure, when we start to notice the nerves. Because, um, you know, like we've talked about our, our nerves, um, our mind can start racing, we can go to the what ifs, worst case scenarios. And when we notice that happening, we bring our mind back to just those short um, specific statements and, and it can be really helpful. Um, so those would be, you know, some of the sports psychology tools. Um, I guess to answer your, your um, second question, how, you know, when, when can we manage some of the anxiety on our own and when is it helpful to kind of seek professional help? Um, I think the first thing is, you know, knowing yourself as an individual athlete, as an individual runner, um, so, so what are some of the causes of anxiety for you specifically? So you can know, okay, you know, maybe in the month leading up or the week before a race, I'm going to get more nervous. Um, so we can almost anticipate it. Um, so identifying some of those causes, you know, for different athletes, it's going to be different. I mean, a lot of athletes, a lot of you guys are going to be, um, you know, may have performance anxiety, but other people may have, you know, anxiety based on social comparisons or fear of letting other people down or, 
um, body image things. Um, so, you know, being able to in, know kind of what triggers you, anticipate times where you might feel more nervous is helpful. Um, being able to know personally for yourself, how do I get anxious? Cause, cause people are going to different, um, have different ways of experiencing anxiety. So knowing, okay, I always, um, feel my heart racing more, or I get jittery or I get sweaty palms. Um, some people, you know, like we mentioned, just may have more cognitive symptoms, experience it in their mind. So if we can know, okay, I can anticipate this is a time where I'm going to get anxious. And then I can feel myself getting anxious that, um, that right there is really helpful, you know, to, to begin to give us more control. Um, and then I think from there being able to, I know yourself, know, you know, is this something where I feel like I can, you know, do a little bit of extra self-care, I can reach out to my social supports and be okay. Or do I really feel like this is, um, impacting my functioning and do I feel like, um, it might be, um, beyond that and I could really, you know, benefit from some professional help. Um, I, I think, you know, the field of sports psychology is also shifting, which is cool too. So, you know, reaching out to a sports psychologist, it doesn't have to mean your anxiety has gotten, you know, um, so extreme that, that, you know, you feel like you're in this crisis or something. It could just, you know, people are wanting to, to think more preventatively, right. To be able to, um, just like we train our bodies, we can train our minds too. And so, you know, a lot of it's that too is, um, you know, from the, from the get-go is just establishing good practices and good supports and that, you know, realizing with the right support, I can actually go, you know, further, faster. A couple of things I noted. First of all, I like how you describe some of the manifestations of anxiety. For, they don't always sound like anxiety. For example, um, you mentioned body comparison. That kind of goes in a different category, but that's anxiety. And so I think sometimes when people experience those things or when you worry about letting people down, sometimes that is obvious anxiety, but other times it may just be thinking about people coming to see you and not wanting to disappoint them. Why would that be anxiety? But by normalizing it and talking about it and kind of defining it, I think that helps people understand that it's a very broad definition with a lot of different types of manifestations. If someone wanted to seek support before a race, what does that look like? Is it multiple sessions or could someone seek support with just one session before a race? Is there any impact by doing it that way? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I don't think, um, I mean, different sports psychologists have it set up different ways. I like to meet with someone for an initial intake and um, kind of get a really clear sense of what's going on for you as an individual athlete, um, what um, could be helpful, and then kind of create an individualized performance plan together there. Um, it may vary depending on person, but I, I don't think, you know, having to commit to um a whole package, so to speak, upfront is necessary, but, you know, kind of figuring out um, the same way you would with a race plan, you know, where am I at? What are the things that I need to consider? What do I think would be helpful? And then having kind of a general plan for that would be, um, I think, really helpful. Yeah, I love how you said we train our bodies. Like we, you know, we talk to our runners a lot about not only using us as, as experts, but, you know, dietitians and sports psychologists and uh, trainers to like come together with, you know, all the expert kind of support that you need to 
be able to, you can do all the workouts, but if you just do the workouts and you don't have all the other things in place, um, it doesn't, you know, you can still, um, you can still struggle. So I, I like how, um, you, you mentioned, you know, being kind of proactive about it and you don't have to wait for a, a crisis to come up, but how integral it is to performance is just to have that kind of sense of who, where am I, what, you know, what triggers me or what, you know, what anxieties may I have? How can I train my, my mind to, to also complement all this physical training um, that I'm doing. You touched for a, a moment on, um, you know, comparisons. Um, and we talk about this a lot with our runners, social media. I talk a little bit about how, you know, we use it a lot. We've been following all the Olympics trials, marathoners that just ran and, um, you know, you follow their training, you follow what they're doing. We see what our friends are doing. Strava is out there. It tells you exactly where, what people are running, where they're running, how often, how fast. And it seems like um, we do it. We are, tend to do it ourselves. Our, our runners, you know, are getting nervous and worried and, and looking at the social media. So talk to us a little bit about social media and how, we as coaches can help our runners put that in perspective and how a runner themselves can learn to turn it off when they need to turn it off or how to filter that and, and support their mental health. I, th I think that's a really good question. I just want to back up really quickly to the last point that you made, because I thought that was so impactful is um, as athletes, if we can create a team around us um, of support, I think yeah. that can make us become most effective, um, you know, reaching out for help and having, your athletic trainer, sports dietitian, sports medicine, um, those all are, are great supports. And, um, you know, just like our physical body, we, we want to do strength and conditioning upfront. We want to, um, you know, participate in recovery methods and things like that. We don't want to wait till we have an injury to intervene. Right. So exactly. we, um, I, I think we want to be thinking a bit of it in that same way, kind of, um, preventatively and how do we set ourselves up for the best chance of success? Um, yeah, absolutely. so back to the, um, social media piece, um, you know, what kind of, I guess the question was, what kind of impact does that have on athletes and what are some of the things that we can do around that? I think that's so, you know, pertinent in, in this day and age. Um, it's interesting with social media and, and especially with all the shifts in terms of NIL, um, name, image, and likeness. And, you know, social media is a platform for athletes that in some ways can be positive, right? It can help us connect with fans. It can help us to build a personal brand. Um, it can help us receive sponsorships. So in that way, um, it may be helpful, but of course it also adds, you know, tremendous pressure and scrutiny, um, that, that you as athletes, um, probably experience constantly being in the public eye, right. Feeling pressure to have to share about your lives, um, maybe a lack of privacy, um, you know, always being, um, having people comment, right. Positively and negatively on what, we're doing and sharing their opinions. And that can lead to, you know, a lot of stress and anxiety for, for you as athletes. Um, I think back to that idea of social comparison too, you know, with, on social media, everyone's showing their, their greatest highlight reel. Um, and so we're constantly comparing ourselves as athlete to everyone else's highlight reel. And that can lead to, you know, just questioning, am I measuring up, um, to what everyone else is doing? Um, you know, especially for adolescents too, there's a lot of social comparison in that developmental um, stage and it can, it can really feel like a lot of pressure. And then, you know, that body image or comparing, you know, a lot of times on social media, um, 
people are showing kind of their physical appearance, right? What is, um, what does this look like? Or um, my appearance online, body image. And so there's added, I think, pressures in that way. Um, and then lastly, is that constant connectivity, right? Um, I mean, we're all, you know, on social media a lot and, and engaged in it. And there's always updates and responding to fans and sharing glimpses of our lives. Um, so I, I think it's important um, because that can be kind of overwhelming. And I think especially as we're going into a race or competition, um, making a decision, how long beforehand am I going to turn that off? Because it can just, it can really be a distraction, especially, you know, the night before or day of competition, we need to um, really center our minds and, and get focused for, um, you know, the race ahead of us. And so I think that's a piece is how do we kind of set boundaries around it, set limits for ourselves? Yeah. I was thinking about that as you were talking, I noticed, um, on Saturday, the Mar Olympic marathon trials almost within 24 hours. I'm sure you noticed this too, Lisa, the athletes that, didn't have the best race. I felt like they felt forced to create these narratives and these posts on Instagram to share their story. And it made me feel really sad for those athletes. They had to do it. They have sponsors. They had people come to see them. And instead of allowing them some time and space just to process, it seemed like they spent a lot of time immediately after not achieving their goal, explaining why versus just sitting in it and allowing them to process it. And it, it made me sad that that's what we've come to where you don't even get that privacy to just kind of ruminate over what happened before you have to write this whole essay on what happened for everyone else to find out before you've even really processed it. Yeah, it really, you know, makes things public and, and there's a lot of emphasis on that and um, it can be challenging. So switching gears a little bit, there's also a lot of anxiety that uh, surrounds injury. And of course, part of sport is injury. And one of the hardest things about returning from injury is the mental part, um, having the mental confidence to go forward, even if you've been cleared by your physician or physical therapist. Similarly, with respect to injury, the other mental component is allowing your brain to accept that you are indeed injured, listening to pain, processing that and understanding that you might not be able to execute what you had intended because you're injured. So can you talk a little bit about the interplay between injury and specifically running and how an athlete can best manage when they find themselves in either situation? Yeah, I think, you know, injury is often an inevitable part of sport and, and pushing ourselves hard and, um, can be definitely challenging. And I think you bring up a good point, which is that idea of acceptance. Sometimes that is the hardest part is kind of accepting where we're at. Um, because, you know, we imagine things to be a certain way and we put so much time and energy into our, um, our training and, you know, our goals and we want it to be a certain way. And, and when we get injured, you know, that's challenging. I also think, you know, with athletes like yourselves, um, a lot of times when we, you know, reach a high level, it's because we're um, good at sport and and because, um, you know, it, it's played a significant role in our lives. And so I think for athletes, sport um, or physical activity often has been like their, um, 
one of their greatest coping strategies. So here you have, you know, four stress and four anxiety. And, you know, it's, it's like, if you were growing up, you could just, and you're feeling stressed or pressured, you just went for a run. And it was like, that cleared your head, that made your body feel good and made you feel strong. Um, so then when we get injured, it's like, great way to, way to kind of take away my greatest coping strategy. It can really be challenging in that way and, and push us to have to kind of dig deep and get creative and, and learn other ways of coping. Um, I think it's important, you know, when we do experience injuries to set realistic goals and expectations. Um, I, with the athletes that I work with, I always say, you know, compare yourself to, to the day you got injured, because oftentimes if we compare ourselves to how we were pre-injury, it's a setup to, to feel like we're not making as much progress or we're not as good as, as we want to be. And, you know, no doubt you will most likely get back to that point. You may even come back stronger, but it's a process and we have to go kind of step by step. And I think it's important that we really um, celebrate the small wins along the way um, that can help, you know, just in terms of that motivation piece and, and feeling like, you know, we're seeing progress. Um, I think that's another with injuries is another place where we definitely need our team. Um, you know, that could be teammates, friends, families, coaches, um, professionals. We need to have really good communication with athletic trainers, with our doctors, um, with our rehab team, um, sports psychologists. Those are, you know, other Im important factors that I think can help athletes as they, you know, navigate returning from an injury and, and working through some of the stress and pressure around that. I like that approach because we also coach a lot of runners who are masters runners and older runners who are comparing themselves to their, you know, much younger selves. And I like that, you know, compare yourself to your 40 year old self, not your 20 year old self or your 50 year old self or whatever your, your next birthday is. I, I really, I really like that. What are there um, steps that you think runners can take kind of um, proactively or preventatively before they're injured to make sure that they then have that toolbox of, you know, that, that, that you said we have to dig deep and we have to find, you know, is there something we can do to kind of prepare ourselves? If I get injured, then I have this way to, you know, this other way to deal with my anxiety. I don't, you know, I can't go out for a run, but is there a way to kind of, kind of prepare ourselves for that? And I don't know, you know, reinforce or um, just make sure that if, if something happens, we're in a good place where we're prepared to do that. Yeah, that's, um, I, I think that's a good one. I think um, having a variety of tools in our tool belt can be helpful. Um, so that can be, you know, thinking about how, how can we manage stress? How can we have a few different ways that we do it? Um, you know, for some people, it's um, going outside in nature. Other people may um, like to do something creative, like play music or listen to music. Um, for some people it's, you know, having, um, having those social relationships or, or supports that we can talk to when we're feeling stressed or, you know, feel comfortable with or get support from, um, you know, having a variety of those strategies in our, in our tool belt, I think can help so that it, it's kind of like, we're not putting all our eggs in one basket, but we have a range of ways of managing stress. Yeah, that's really helpful. Very helpful. So, uh, before we go a couple of things, first of all, if someone wants to engage someone like you to help them during this final stretch before their race, um, what's the best way to, 
find someone who practices? And do you do virtual appointments if anyone was interested in working specifically with you? Yes, those are um, those are really important pieces. I think um, I do do virtual um, sessions. A lot of sports psychologists do now, so that can be helpful. Um, you want to when you're looking for a provider, you really want to look at licensure and their training. Um, those are those are so important. Is that you're working with a qualified practitioner um, who has specialty in working with athletes. So so looking at someone's training and specialization um, is key. I guess the other piece that um, that I'm thinking is, you know, there are certain restrictions in terms of licensure within states. So, um, you know, it, it's important for most people to find someone that's within their own state, um, so that you know they're they're able to, um, you know, work with them. Yeah, that's similar. I think to our dietitians that we work with, also, you know, there's state licensure requirements. So that's that's super helpful. If if people are would like to get in touch with you, where can they find you? What's the best way to get in touch with you? We'll also include in our show notes. But if you want to let people know how they can find out more about you and get in touch with you, sure. Um, please feel free to um, check out my website. It's drdrshira.shira.com um, or themindedge.com. And lastly, before we go, we just want to ask you to give our runners, our listeners who are training for spring races, particularly the Boston Marathon, some um, words of wisdom. Well, I wish you all good luck out there. Um, I think trust your training, trust your hard work. Think of your past successes um, and, and maybe make a highlight reel of those for yourself. Um, reflect on other challenges that you've overcome and how you've done it. Um, so remembering that you can do hard things, know your why I think is important. Um, because when the, when the going gets tough, um, you know, you can, you can remember why you got involved in this and, um, you know, the meaning that it has for you and breathe, take a deep breath. You got this. I like that coming back full circle to what you talked about. The first tool you talked about is, is that breathing, which I think a lot of us fail, fail to do, especially runners. They're on the go, always like always thinking about what do I have to do next training, you know, kind of high type a high intensity, a lot of us. So I think that breathing is, is really one of the things I will take away most from, from what we've talked about and the importance of kind of that, you know, uh, sitting with ourselves and breathing and, and regulating um, our bodies. So thank you so much for spending time with us today. And um, we hope that our runners will reach out to you or check out um, what you're doing and uh, really think about um, how they can train their minds as we get closer to race day. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Dr. Shira. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.